0: Good morning. Want to uh, do something at the very beginning here so that you experience exactly what we're talking about in this uh, series. Might be a little odd for you. Nothing weird or mysterious about it. Very practical. It's one of the ways we have peace. Jesus promises us peace. So close your eyes, and if you're watching on. Uh, live stream right now, close your eyes as well. Close your eyes. Right? Put your arms down by your side. Breathe in slowly. Hold it. Breathe out. Alright? Do it again with your eyes closed. This time when you breathe out, I want everyone in the room to say out loud, Peace. Okay? Ready? Peace. Did you do it? That's the gift that Jesus Christ promises to us. And one of the things that should be happening as we grow in grace We get the gift of peace when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. We we have all of that gift. But it must be activated. and It has to be activated in the trials and the tribulations and the suffering and the pain and the sorrow and the turmoil in this world. In fact, this series is entitled, How to Have Peace in a World of Turmoil. You might think that the world we're living in is, is tumultuous like nothing before. That's actually not true. Turmoil is the norm of the human experience. Remember we talked about that in that very first message we titled it Kingdoms in Conflict. The history of the world is a history of conflict, and here's why. Because two invisible kingdoms are right are fighting for your allegiance. And, and they're here in this room. You can't see them, but we're told it's in the heavenly realm, in the invisible realities of life. The kingdom of light is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of light brings us the right way to live. And then there's another kingdom led by the evil one. Lucifer, Satan, the devil, as he's commonly called, after he fell out of heaven because he wanted to be like God, then he tempted Eve, deceived her, and then Adam willfully followed along in the rebellion. And as a result of that, man lost the right to be the ruler of this world, and he fell into The kingdom of darkness, and and the devil is the one who rules over that kingdom of darkness. And these two kingdoms are in conflict with one another, constantly. People ask the question, why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, here's what's behind it all. Paul says in Ephesians 6, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not fighting other human beings. It feels like it. It feels like many people are our adversaries, but they're really not. There's a power behind them that is driving them. And that power is is exercising itself all over the world. People in each of the kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, they see two totally different realities. They also think a whole different way. In the kingdom of darkness, this is what you have to remember. When when you are up against someone and, and they're causing you a great deal of suffering and pain, and they feel like an adversary to you. Remember, there's a force driving them. As I have gotten older, I have actually become more compassionate for the people in the kingdom of darkness. And I, that's what you see in the life of Jesus. Jesus. You see him being compassionate, especially for those who were traumatized deeply. The the people who were left out, the people who were run over, the people who were outside, the people who were lost. He had great compassion for those people. In the kingdom of darkness, here's, here's what's driving them. This invisible force, this kingdom of darkness is causing the citizens of darkness to be driven by a selfish love for themselves or their tribe or their country. And, and it sounds like love sometimes, but it's a very, very selfish that was the temptation that, that was first offered to Eve. You, you can be like God. You can be a God. You can make decisions for yourself. You have a right to do whatever you want to do. You and your family. You and your tribe. You and your country. And, and they're driven by this selfish kind of love. Lynn and I have the privilege, when we're up here a couple weeks every month, Part of the time, a friend of ours loans us his house, and it's right on Lake Michigan. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And there's like 15 homes in this, in this little area, and, and we have beach access. He was telling me that a few years ago, a man moved in, and, and the beach area in this whole area is supposed to be for everybody. Like, everybody's supposed to be able to use it. But a person purchased a lot and then declared to the rest of the neighborhood that his house, the width of his house, down to the water was his beach. <laughs> and nobody could use it. And, and in the bylaws, it actually says that, no, the, the beach... The beach is everyone's beach. You know what, do you know what they had to do? The homeowners association there had to sue this guy. (laughs) I always say hell is a homeowners association, right? Hell is a homeowners association. And you know what I mean if you have a homeowners association. But they, they had to sue this man, so that they, the rest of the neighborhood, could walk on the beach. And, and thankfully, they won the law, because there are instances, of course, right, where the courts might not do that. You never know. And, and here's what you get into. I think about, these are, these are beautiful homes on a beautiful lake with a beautiful beach, And all it takes is one selfish person to mess everything up. And if I ask you for a show of hands, how many have experienced one person really messing up things for a lot of people, you'd all say, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, here's what's driving them. It is is this selfish love for themselves, or their tribe, or their family, or their gang, or their team, or their country. The kingdom of light is completely different, and that's who we are. That's what we're a part of. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's all about, this This is how Jesus saw life. And this is how Jesus wants to transform you. This this is how his citizens live. His followers practice these things. In the kingdom of light, the citizens are driven. What are we driven by? Because of Christ, we are driven by an unselfish love for everyone. Including, this is how profound our love is, if if it's fully functioning, including our enemies. You see, (coughs) we're the only people on the planet that can not only love the people that love us, we can actually love the people that hate us, that abuse us, that mistreat us. We, we have that kind of love. And, and that's that, you know, John seven thirty seven through 39, that's, that's that river of life springing up within us that causes us to, to see the world and especially people. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that you will notice is that, is that all the principles mostly apply to your relationship with other people. When, this is what Colossians 1 says, when a person is rescued from the domain of darkness, and this is is how Colossians words it, and is transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son of God, his or her formerly selfish love begins a process of depreciation. When you you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and King, one of the things that should be happening to you is that selfish love that you were born with begins to diminish. It begins to depreciate. And eventually, this was was, uh, the first beatitude, eventually he or she will be bankrupt with regard to that kind of expression of love. And that's what the Bible, that's what that first beatitude calls to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means I I am growing in grace, but I'm losing my selfishness. I'm growing in in my love for God, and I'm growing in my love for people, even those who give me a lot of grief. The next beatitude follows in line that once you are poor in spirit, here's what the next beatitude says. I'm going to put it up there. It's the only verse we have on the screen. Here's here's what happens when you're poor in spirit. The next thing, one of the first things that begins to happen is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does that mean? One of the things, and this is very, very important, one of the things that the children of light the followers of Jesus, who is their king, they begin to learn the right purpose for sorrow, tears, and mourning. This is the title of the message. Their mourning will always be good mourning their mourning when when they mourn it will they will be learning the whole concept of good mourning here's another thing and this is the reason that they learn good morning they begin to develop a high sensitivity to sin especially their own. As, as you grow in grace. Now, there are people in the world that have a high sensitivity to your sin. <laughs> right? And they, they're very good at pointing out your sin. You know what the Bible calls them? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. And, and they're very judgmental. And their whole goal in making themselves feel good is to make you feel bad. But when we talk about the proper understanding of sorrow and mourning and, and why we have it, it's because what happens over the, to- over the course of time is we develop more and more. So, so the thinking in this world is diminishing. The way the world thinks is depreciating. Here's here's what's increasing in us. We are developing a greater sensitivity to sin. Whenever, Whenever I have led someone to Jesus Christ, you know, one of the one of the things that I do, I I don't just leave them there. So I take them through some kind of study through the scriptures, that teaches them, now, this is what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And, and, and I have led many people to Christ, and it's always funny, because many of them are deeply, when they come to Christ, they're deeply involved in sin. But here's what happens. I, I don't point out that sin to them. I just bring them, I, I keep meeting with them, talking with them, taking them through Scripture, introducing them to Christ, introducing them to the Holy Spirit in their life. I, I remember I, I was talking to one guy, I was taking him through, a young guy. He accepted Christ. And, and we were going through. He came in with his book, you know, I think we were meeting at Panera and he looks at me puts this book down he goes I gave up violent video games this week I said I didn't know you watched violent video games or or played violent video games I've never did that before I said well that's interesting how did you do that why did you do that he said he said, I, I, I didn't think Christ wanted me to do that. He said, I didn't, I didn't think that was good for me. Do you, do you know what was happening to him? He was, he was learning good morning. He was developing a greater sensitivity to sin. And I didn't, I didn't have to, you know, hammer him over the head. pointed out to him because the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and and his own development inside of him as Christ was growing in him he was he was turning away from things he had no business being involved in there is good morning and there is bad morning do you know Sorrow is a gift from God. Do you know that? Sorrow is a gift from God. I thought long and hard about this. It probably was given as a gift as a result of the fall. I just can't see in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve before the fall, I can't see a lot of tears and sorrow. I know there's maybe tears of joy. Maybe there were tears of joy. But one of the things that's really clear to me is, is that sorrow is a gift from God. Now, ask yourself this question. Why would God, who gave us a brain, because he shaped our brains, he made our brains, and, and I'm convinced that the human brain is the greatest creation in the entire universe. There's, like, there's nothing like this three-pound thing. There's nothing like it. But why would God, who gave us this brain, and and the brain is there to, you know, produce chemicals in the body that that cause us to act a certain way and feel a certain way. Why would God, who gave us the brain, allow negative emotions to be part of how we're made? So there's six negative emotions, right? There's, There's one positive emotion, and it's, it's our natural state. You were designed, and, and neuroscientists have now proven this, because they can actually take images of the brain on stimulation, and here's what they've discovered. They've discovered the brain runs best on joy. Right? And peace, by the way. It's supposed to, We're supposed to have this kind of rhythm in life of joy, peace, joy, peace. Peace, joy, peace. But in addition to joy and peace, rest, there is anger, fear, sadness, sorrow, sadness, shame, disgust, and despair. Why, why, why is it a gift? And why would God give these negative emotions to us? Well, here's why I think. Sin, you need to know this. You need to know this. When you head down that that broad path, when when you are lured, when you are seduced, when you are tricked, when you are deceived, sin always produces pain and sorrow. And God gave us sorrow to process the pain and loss that we will experience sometimes because we caused it and sometimes because somebody else caused it. But it found its way into our lives. And, and we know that sin does that. Think about... I just want to use Jesus to, to demonstrate this. The short... Would you all like to learn a memory verse this morning? Walk out of here and say, you know, today I learned a memory verse. John eleven, thirty-five. Who knows what that is? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why does he weep? I think he's weeping because he understands the pain and the loss that death brings. And death is the result of sin. And his friend Lazarus had to experience that. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, were just wrought with anxiety. Martha said, Lord, if you had come earlier, he wouldn't have died. There's only three places in Scripture. I'm sure Jesus wept more than these three times. But there's only three places. Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus. Do you remember when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? Remember that? Fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, and they spread palm branches. They threw down their cloaks in front of him. He was seated on the foal of a donkey. And, and everyone was cheering for him. Everyone was welcoming him. Do you know that it says, after, as he rode into the city, he began to weep over the city. And the word that is used for weeping is a loud wail. So so even people around watched Jesus crying out, Then, of course, the one that you're familiar with is in the garden. When he said to the Father, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The writer of Hebrews says, here's what was going on. He offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death in the garden of Gethsemane. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus this way. You know what it says? Here's the description. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Does that mean he walked around mopey, sad, miserable? No, he was probably the most joyful person that's ever been on this planet. He was filled with joy. And and he, he also gives us that joy. He said, He said, I'm telling you these things so that that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. That's what he said to the disciples on the night before the crucifixion. No, he was filled with joy. So what does it mean here in Isaiah 53 when it says he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief? Here's what it means. He became acquainted with our sin. He became acquainted with, with, with our pain, our grief, the stuff that happens to us, all because of sin. You know, even, even secular writers, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, wrote a very famous book now on grief. And she says, there are five stages of grief. And, and you can see, you can see how, how it works its way through. She says, first denial, then anger, then bargaining, and then finally depression, sadness, sorrow. Sorrow feels like somebody's hitting the brakes, doesn't it? It feels like someone's hitting the brakes in your life, and then finally acceptance. That's a gift from God. That process is a gift from God. Jesus experienced that process in the Garden of Gethsemane. People say, what was going on when he was crying out? Here's what was going on. He was processing genuine pain inside of him, and he was feeling it in his humanity. And then he was accepting it not my will but your will be done. Ecclesiastes 3 There's great insight on how to live in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Here's what it says. To everything there is a season. And I always want to add turn turn turn. But it's not in there. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. You know what that's saying? It's saying there's a right time and a right place for everything that you're feeling. And if you can understand God's rhythm, you'll get to live that way. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is teaching us how we should respond, how we should act and react in life. Verse 4, Ephesians chapter 3, says a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Paul writes the book of Romans, it's a magnificent, probably the greatest human document ever written. The first eight chapters are all about God's plan and, and how Jesus Christ has brought salvation to the world, all kinds of people. And it's only received by grace. Then chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's almost like he takes a paraphrase, but not really. He talks about the nation of Israel, their history, their present condition, and eventually their their glorious future, because God is going to save Israel. He's going to honor his word with Israel. Then, then from chapter 12 to the end of the book, he gets very practical, and here's how he starts chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, which is those first 11 chapters, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual uh, service of worship. Now listen to what he says. Don't be conformed to this world. That's that's, uh, the spirit of the world. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold. Instead, be transformed. How? By renewing your mind. That's what's happening. What's happening is, God is in the process of renewing our mind. Do you know what this is saying, verse, verse, uh, this verse that says, blessed are those who mourn? Here's what it means. For those who are in the kingdom of heaven, it means that God is healing our emotions. God is healing our emotions. So that, so that we know when to laugh, we know when to cry, when to mourn, when to dance. We know when to weep with those who are weeping, we know when to Laugh with those who are laughing. We we are the people who don't laugh at inappropriate times. We are the people who are not overwhelmed the way the world is. The world often gets it wrong. The world often mourns for the wrong thing. Two, Two examples, quickly. In the life of David, he had sons and daughters, and one son was named Amnon. And, and his half-sister was Tamar. And, and here's the story. He fell in love. He didn't really fall in love. He fell in lust with her. And he wanted her. And he put together a trick to get her into his bedroom by, by, by requesting. He was sick and he was requesting that she prepare a meal. And so King David commanded her to do that. Everybody left the house. And then he took her and raped her. You know what it says? He says It says, while he was looking at her, when he was lusting after her, he was saddened that he couldn't have her. That's the wrong reason for sorrow. Then, then after that, his other son, Absalom, killed Amnon and then led a rebellion against David, and actually was living in the palace, chased David and his men out of Jerusalem. And finally, the soldiers, led by Joab, killed Absalom, because his beautiful hair got caught in a thicket in the woods. He was hanging there, and then Joab killed him. And then afterwards, listen, David wept, and he said, "'Oh, my son Absalom, would that you had lived!' Are you kidding me, David? What's wrong with your emotions? You're pining after someone. You're sad. This is the person that would have killed you and taken your throne. Joab actually said to him, "'We think,' these are his soldiers, "'we think you would have been happier, David,' If Absalom had lived and we had died. See, emotions were given to us, and they were given so that we would get it right. And the most important thing, here's the most important thing that sorrow should do for us. It should cause us to repent. We develop the sensitivity to sin and as we develop it more and more, it's almost like an alarm system. So that when we do sin, it's Second um, Corinthians chapter 7. You can read it. I'm not going to read it. But there's a man there that was being disciplined by the church. And Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, He says, okay, he's repented and I'm glad you were sorry. That, that he was in sin, and now he has a godly sorrow. It's not the sorrow of the world. Here's what he says. The sorrow of the world. See, sin not only leads to pain and suffering and death, but the sorrow of the world that accompanies that sin also leads to death. But the sorrow that of God, the sorrow that he sends, when, when God makes us sorrow over our sin. The wonderful result is that we repent. And you know what, you know what the word repent, reper, repent sounds like a big, big theological word, doesn't it? Like repent. Sounds like a, a tent evangelist, doesn't it? Re, re, repent, you need to repent. You know what repent means? In business, they call it a paradigm shift. It means, here's what repent means. To change your thinking about something and to do it a whole different way. That's, that's what we want for one another, isn't it? How does that happen? How do I learn this? Well, here's what happens. I've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's been put inside of me. The more I lean on Him, the more I sync up, more, the more my brain sinks up with the Holy Spirit, Someone asked me the other day, how do I know, how do you know, John, that you're syncing up with the Holy Spirit? I say, because of the way I treat people. Because of the way I view life. One of the ways is the way I look at sin. (laughs) If sin seems attractive to me, I'm not syncing up with the Holy Spirit. But, But if sin is losing its attractiveness. It means more and more, I'm learning to walk in the Spirit. Isn't it great? God, the world, the world gets peace from everything being calm out here, right? I mean, this is how the world gets peace. If everything's calm out here, no wind, no waves, I got peace. You know how God gives peace? everything in here, from the inside out. You begin to experience the peace that passes all understanding. So, you and I, my, one of my prayers, there's my prayer. Lord, make me sensitive to sin in my life. Not in other, but not in other people's lives. Make me sensitive to what's going on in my heart. And then, Lord, would you heal my emotions? Would you heal my emotions? Would you heal them all? Would you use anger and fear and sadness and shame, disgust and despair? Would you help me to begin to react and respond so that, so that even those emotions are being used in the way that you gave them to me as a gift. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. <laughs> thank you, Lord, that even the things that are hard are wonderful gifts from you. I pray for your people here today. I know that some are experiencing sorrow, and it's a sorrow just because of the things we have to go through in this world, I pray that they would be encouraged in you. They'd be strengthened in the name of the Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to be sorry over sin in their life, would you bring them conviction and then repentance, that godly sorrow that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen.